Thank you for listening to this audio from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website, trinityspartanburg.com. Okay, we're going to turn to Galatians chapter 3. So open up your Bibles. And we had worked through the end of chapter 3 before, but we didn't get uh, much time to spend on verse 28. And so we're just going to look at verse 28 today. You all right? Okay. This is the word of the Lord. This is Galatians 3.28. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. We're the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this Lord's Day. Thank you for, uh, thank you for worship. Thank you for a church that, um, that gathers and loudly proclaims uh, their praises. And Lord, we pray that you would move our hearts to sing and give thanks to you. Lord, we pray that you would give us wisdom as we look at your word and that we would be uh, encouraged by it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so who wants to give me a summary of the book of Galatians up to this point? I've done it every week for the past, I don't know how many weeks, it's been a number, but um, can anybody give me uh, what they think is what we've, what, how you would summarize this passage? Yeah, Bob. Okay. Yeah, salvation is by faith. Particularly how we how we have right standing with God is by faith, right? Justification. Yeah, justification is by faith alone. That is the one thing that the apostle Paul wants to make clear to the Galatian Christians who are being tossed about by the Judaizers who are coming in and saying, no, salvation, yes, it's by grace, but it's grace plus circumcision, it's grace plus ceremonial law, it's grace plus law-keeping. And the Apostle Paul wants to make it very clear, and the Holy Spirit through the Apostle Paul wants to make it very clear that that is wrong, and that is heresy, and that justification is by faith alone. So that's been, I mean, every point that he's made up in the book up to this point is keep, just keeps going back to that. He's trying to build this, this case. He's trying to use even the passages that the Judaizers would use in their defense against them, right? So he goes to a, the example of Abraham in the Old Testament. And so now we get to this verse that has been, um, has an interesting history, an interesting uh, use in the last, I would say, 
since the 1970s. And I, you could probably imagine how it's used, but um, think of it. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free man, and then this is the controversial part, there is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. There are certain evangelical feminists writing in the 70s, 80s, 90s that called this verse the Magna Carta of humanity. It is the, the, the statement about humanity and specifically about how men and women function. in society, in the church, and in the home. They would go to this verse and they would say that you have to start from this verse and this verse then reorients all of the rest of Scripture. Especially because this, this, was, this was Rabbi Paul coming to an understanding of male and female, finally. And so, I want to read some of these evangelical feminists, and I know the right sources to go to, and, the, um, and this is a passage that, that I've looked at for a long time. But the reason I want to establish what is this book about is, how do we interpret Scripture? Context is hugely important to the interpretation of Scripture. Okay, and the context of Galatians is justification by faith alone. So does this statement, verse 28, relate to justification by faith alone? Yes. Duh. And so is this, is this Paul suddenly shifting directions and addressing what it means to be male and female. No, not at all. But that's not what high-powered evangelicals would say. Let me just read you a few things from a guy named Paul Jewett. He wrote a book called Man as Male and Female. What do I know about Paul Jewett? He's a feminist. He's a professor was a professor of systematic theology at Fuller Theological Seminary. Sort of liberal evangelicals um, Harvard, so to speak. So he writes, crucial to the author's entire argument is the point that Christians today should not strive to maintain the status quo reflected in the first century church as though that example were meant to establish the norm for all times and all places. Okay, you already see how he's off the rails, right? I mean, don't... Paul... I mean, Paul's first century. So let's not take first century as sort of the norm for what, what we do now. There's been a lot of time. There's been a lot of research. There's been a lot of opening up of the mind since then. I mean, that's, it's such a shockingly ignorant statement. You know, I, 
Rather, Christians today should seek to implement the liberating principles of the New Testament in order to achieve the New Testament ideal of redeemed humanity in Christ. To be consistent, any church which insists on keeping women in a first century relationship to men must also insist upon the reinstitution of slavery as it existed in the first century. New Testament remarks, um, New Testament remarks to slaves were intended to comfort and instruct them in a situation which could not be changed overnight. While New Testament principles of Christian brotherhood were intended ultimately to destroy slavery. Similarly, New Testament remarks about female subordination were intended to comfort and instruct women in a situation which could not be changed overnight. While New Testament principles of love and mutual respect were intended ultimately to destroy all subordination of one half of the human race to the other. Any church or individual who can make cultural distinctions in connection with slavery must in all honesty make similar distinctions about the relationship between men and women as pictured in the New Testament. The liberating vision of Galatians 3.28, not the stultifying first century actuality, is the ideal to implement. Okay, that's not Jewett, by the way. That's by Virginia Mollencott, who wrote the introduction to the book. And she is a um, chairman of the Department of English at William Patterson College of New Jersey. Virginia Ramey Mollencott, Ph.D., it says. Okay, do you understand what she's just done? It's, It's sleight of hand. It's not so slight, though. <laughs> it's, it, she, she has just said, look, don't trust Scripture. Don't trust a first century document. Paul didn't know what he was talking about. Paul was a rabbi. Paul was Jewish. Paul was, he just had so much baggage. And so all this stuff about female submission and male headship, well, that's just carryover from Paul the rabbi. And we, we, though, take Galatians 3.28 as our Magna Carta that has reoriented all male and female relationships. And then the other thing she says is, is if you're going to hold to female subordination, you better be a supporter of slavery. Right? But what's wrong about that argument? What's wrong about that argument, though? This is a hard argument to make. Trust me. Yeah. Thank you. Wait, let me just clarify. Subordination speaks to inequality. 
where submission speaks to headship and response within the context of equality, okay? So let's, let's get that right, but Okay. Okay, thank you very much. Right, male and female is just fundamental. It is creation ordinance. It, 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 is, it has nothing to do with the entrance of sin into the world, right? It precedes the fall. It is very good. God's, God um, made the man and he was alone and he fashioned the woman out of his rib and brought her to the man and the man sang and praised God for this good gift. And then God said, you're his helpmate corresponding to him, right? Okay. Are there any passages in the Apostle Paul's writings where we could go to and we could say, you know, it sounds like he, he would be happy if slavery ended. Well, there's a book called Philemon. And he says, look, if you can, and there are places where the Apostle Paul says, if you can gain your freedom, you know, all the better. But when it comes to male and female, what is the predominant statement of, of the Apostle Paul about male and female? If Galatians is an early book, we get his later thoughts on male and female, like Ephesians 5, like 1 Timothy 2, and 1 Timothy 2 takes, takes male headship right back to what? The beginning. Pre-fall. Okay? And so there, it's just not, it's not, it's not a fair, it's not a fair statement she's making. Now let me get to Paul Jewett. This is Paul Jewett on Galatians 3.28. The Apostle Paul was the heir of this contrast between the old and the new. To understand his thought about the relation of the woman to the man, one must appreciate he was both a Jew and a Christian. Okay, He was a rabbi of impeccable erudition who had become an ardent disciple of Jesus Christ. And his thinking, I'm sorry, I can't read it in, in any other way than, than, you know. And his thinking about women their place in life generally and in the church specifically, reflects both his Jewish and his Christian experience. The traditional teaching of Judaism and the revolutionary new approach implied in the life and teaching of Jesus contributed, each in its own way, to the apostles' thinking about the relationship of the sexes. So far as he thought in terms of his Jewish background... He thought of the woman as subordinate to the man for whose sake she was created, 1 Corinthians 11.9. But so far as he thought in terms of the new insight he had gained through the revelation of God in Christ, he thought of the woman as equal to the man in all things, the two having been made one in Christ, in whom there is neither male nor female, Galatians 3.28. 
Oh, brother. I mean, immediately, do you guys see the game that's being played here? What is this guy's view of Scripture? I mean, do you see how it boils down to his view of Scripture? He doesn't think that anything's inspired. He thinks that Paul wrote as a Jew at times and he wrote as a Christian. How are we going to determine when he's writing as a Jew and is wrong, right? And when he's writing as a Christian and is right? I mean, it's crazy. His doctrine of inspiration is all messed up. And so he's not to be trusted even on that basis. But what he says is crazy, okay? That any, any talk of the headship of the man is Jewish carryover, is sort of toxic masculinity, is sort of, you know, just a, I don't know, it's, it's the residue of, of bad stuff. So he says that, and my notes in the margin are so small. Oh, I, I, I wrote in the margin when he's talking about women being subordinate to the man, I said many verses here, and then his, you know, there is neither male nor female, one verse here. <laughs> so like, I mean, he just has no sense of the, the, the whole of Scripture. All right, um, let's see. Here, this... Equality in Christ, Galatians 3.28 and the gender dispute is by Richard Hove. And this is, this is a guy who wrote against the feminist egalitarian take on Galatians 3.28. But he gives this little summary at the beginning, which I think is, is helpful. Over the past 20 or 30 years, and he wrote this in 1999... Over the past 20 or 30 years, a great debate has raged regarding the roles of men and women. Should women, for example, be allowed to fight in combat situations? Good question. Historically, the answer to this question has been no. But today, this question is often answered in the affirmative. Military combat is an option for both men and women. Can women compete in the traditionally male sports, such as football or wrestling? Think of this being written in 1999. Now we're living that reality, right? The consensus is changing. Many now insist that to exclude women who desire to participate in these sports is to deny them equal opportunity. Closely related to questions about sexual roles are questions regarding equality. Have women been given the same opportunities as men? Have they been afforded similar credit for their accomplishments? Have businesses, for example, traditionally the domain of men, unfairly excluded women from top management positions? Have women pilots in the military received the same treatment as men? Have women been discriminated against by not receiving the same scholarship funding as men in college sports? Is it inevitable to have male-only military academies? These specific controversies simply serve to illustrate that it is hardly possible to overemphasize the importance and intensity of the present struggle concerning issues related to manhood and womanhood. The church has not been a passive, passive observer of this struggle. It has found itself embroiled in controversies not unlike those in the rest of society. Are men and women equal in God's sight? 
Have women been discriminated against in the church of all places? Does God's word teach that there are unique roles for a husband and a wife in marriage? Are there unique roles for men and women in the church? Is promise keepers, you guys remember promise keepers? Where men would get together in stadiums and cry together? (laughs) Is promise keepers a wonderful organization helping husbands love and lead their wives and families? Or is it an organization perpetuating a dangerously distorted hierarchical view of marriage? Are present translations of the Bible unwittingly sexist? Bible-believing evangelicals have struggled with questions related to manhood and womanhood as intensely as the rest of society. A thorough uh, evaluation of the causes of this sexual crisis is not possible here. It is sufficient to note that the battle is important for all parties involved. Only the naive can witness the ongoing struggle over men's and women's roles and label it a secondary issue. On the contrary, the struggle over sexual identity and roles is critical because sexuality is a crucial part of what it means to be human. God created sexual beings, and if he created them with unique differences and roles, these are not ancillary addenda to humanness, but rather are part of the core of what it means to be human. In fact, the emotional intensity that characterizes this struggle is evidence itself that this is not a secondary issue. The reason this debate is so heated, there are, it seems, no neutral parties, is because each person deeply cares about his or her sexual identity. This identity is for each individual monumentally important to how one views oneself in life. The debate is important, and it is not going away. And then, just a little bit more from this. In Galatians 3.28... Paul writes, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ. This passage has become a critical text in the contemporary debate over the roles of men and women in the church, in the home, and in society. For example, the webpage of Christians for Biblical Equality, CBE, Christians for Biblical Equality, was started sort of to counter Christians, the Council on Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, right? Or CBMW was responding to CBE, okay? The Council on Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, Sarah and I used to work for, Tim Bailey was the executive director for a while. This is not CBMW. This is CBE. For example, the webpage of Christians for Biblical Equality states, Christians for Biblical Equality is an organization of Christians who believe the Bible properly interpreted, teaches, <laughs> teaches, <laughs> teaches the fundamental equality of men and women of all racial and ethnic groups, all economic classes, and all age groups based on biblical teachings summarized in Galatians 3.28, which says there is neither male nor female. That's all it says. But look how they've applied that verse and like magnified it to the Magna Carta of humanity, right? Rebecca Grudius, in her recent book, Good News for Women, a biblical picture of gender equality, writes, of all the texts that support biblical equality, Galatians 3, 26 to 28 is probably the most important. 
In her estimation, this verse is the ultimate biblical statement concerning gender equality. When David Scholler was recently installed as professor of New Testament at Fuller Theological Seminary, he chose to address the issue of the ministry of women in the church. Four main evidences have emerged. He argued for the full participation of women in the ministry of the church. We're talking ordained offices, right? First, women were the first eyewitnesses. These are his arguments. First, women were the first eyewitnesses and proclaimers of the resurrection. True. Second, women, just like men, received the full power of the Holy Spirit. True. Third, the Bible portrays many women who actually exercised authority and leadership among the people of God. Well, let's argue about that. And then fourth, Paul declares that there is no longer male and female, for all of you are one in Christ Jesus. Galatians 3.28. In Scholler's question, Galatians 3.28 is, quote, the fundamental Pauline theological basis for the inclusion of women and men as equal and mutual partners in all the ministries of the church. Unquote. These examples simply illustrate that for some, Galatians 3.28 is more than a key text in the debate over men's and women's roles in the home and the church. Rather, it is the fundamental or most important statement in the New Testament on this issue. Okay. Who else can I... Who else can I pull from? Um, yeah, <laughs> exactly. All right, now this is from a book that I, I, I like and that if you want to read on this debate, you should read it. It's called Man and Woman in Christian Perspective by... Werner Neuer, or Neuer, N-E-U-E-R, Neuer, Werner, printed by, uh, written 91, 1990 actually, 1990. And here's what he says about the equality of the sexes now. So the, the feminists are... Are, are pushing us to consider the equality of the sexes and, uh, because of this verse. And here's what he says. Paul has not merely been charged with hostility to the body, but again and again with hostility towards women. Right? The Apostle Paul gets charged with hostility toward women because he has passages which say that the woman should, the wife should submit to her husband. Right? And he says things like, the, the woman is the glory of man, and the man is the glory of God. Okay? And, and he says, like, um, women should learn in all quietness and submission, and things like that, right? Which we take to be Paul in his Christian phase. Because it's the Holy Spirit. But Paul has, has not merely been charged with hostility to the body, but again and again with hostility towards women. Through his devaluation of women, so it is said, he came into contradiction with Jesus, who in word and deed opposed every kind of devaluation of women. 
Whereas Jesus is supposed to have broken with the patriarchal ideas of his time, Paul fell back into Jewish attitudes which degraded women. He fell back into Jewish attitudes. It's hilarious because what exactly is he doing in the book of Galatians? The very opposite. He's being accused of being a a flaming liberal because he's like, the law doesn't count for anything, you Jews, you Judaizers. Get out of here, right? It's so hilarious. The Apostle Paul made everybody mad. Uh, where was I? Paul fell back into Jewish attitudes which degraded women. A careful study of the Pauline letters shows, however, that this view is untenable. The Apostle makes it clear many times that he upholds the equality of women as Jesus did. Paul expresses his convictions about the inherent equality of the sexes in sublime fashion when he writes in Galatians 3, 27-8, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. This passage shows that in the church of Jesus Christ there is no difference in value between different social classes, slave, freeman, and different sexes, male, female. Since all constitute a single unity in Christ Jesus, the superiority of Jews over Gentiles, freemen over slaves, or men over women, has no justification in the light of Christ's revelation. Paul is in no way saying that all these differences are simply extinguished or have no further significance to shape the life of the church. For it is obvious, it is obvious to Paul, that national, social, and sexual differences continue even among Christians. Paul did not preach about the leveling out of natural and social differences. He did not try to prevent Jewish Christians from keeping the law, or demand that Gentile Christians should keep the Mosaic law. He did not demand the abolition of slavery among Christians. See Philemon. And he consistently recognized the differentiation of the sexes in the shaping of church life. Yet he emphasized in Galatians 3.28 the complete parity of all believers in Christ. How is this apparent discrepancy to be understood? That on the one hand, Paul allows these differences a significance within the church of Jesus, and on the other affirms their abolition in Christ? Some commentators have wanted to see a contradiction within Paul's teaching, claiming that he has not drawn out all the necessary consequences of the understanding he had arrived at in Galatians 3.28. The interpretation of this passage depends completely on how the formula in Christ is to be understood. The expression in Christ is found quite frequently in Paul's epistles and means the new life that is given to those who believe in Christ. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. In Christ, people are saved from being lost. They receive forgiveness of sins, free access to God, rebirth, resurrection from the dead, eternal life. But the expression in Christ does 
does not just describe the new existence in which the individual Christian personally participates, but the new existence of the whole church of Jesus. We, though many, are one body in Christ. All this shows that the formula in Christ describes the church's objective state of salvation. Galatians 3.28 means, therefore, that as far as eternal salvation is concerned, whether male or female, all are equal before God and that each one may enjoy divine sonship through faith in Jesus. In regards to salvation, in regard to justification by faith alone, all are equal. It doesn't matter what you are. If you are human being, you are equal. But that does not then relegate everybody to the same function. Right? It's pretty simple. That way, that way we don't have to we don't have to say, well, Scripture contradicts one, you know, Scripture is contradicting Scripture because here Paul's a Jew and there Paul's a Christian. No, we just have to say, no, here's what it means. He's talking about justification here, and so in that sense, everybody's equal, but, but there are inequalities of function. And to talk about it as inequality of function is really to do it a disservice It's living as a woman or living as a man. It's sexed piety. Right? It is is to live in obedience to God according to the sex that he assigned you in the womb. Right? That has ongoing ramifications for your life. And in fact, in fact, you will live as a male or a female all through eternity. Strangely enough, marriage is temporary. I don't get it. That's hard for me to wrap my brain around, but marriage is temporary. We will, be, we will have our spouse, and it will be the, um, uh, Jesus married to his one bride, the church. Okay, So there will be marriage, but there won't be these marriages there. But we will exist as male and female. That's how how organic, that's how attached to your identity, your sexuality is, your maleness or your femaleness. It will exist on past death. Okay? So that's very helpful, right? Now, what, is, what, did, what did the old guys say? What, did, what does John Calvin say? Well, let me see if I can find it. Here we go. He doesn't say much on, along these lines because he didn't have to say much along these lines, right? He didn't have the 20th century and the feminists to destroy sexuality. They lived, they, they knew maleness and femaleness and they respected that and they lived in that. And so they, in a sense, they didn't have to address these things in the way that we do. Um. I think this is the section. Here Paul declares, and he's talking about 328. Here Paul declares that we ought to be so closely united to the Lord Jesus Christ that none of us would presume to rise up and set himself above the rest. 
We ought all to realize that everything we have is due to the grace of God alone. All of us, from the greatest to the least, must endeavor to accept this fact. With one accord, let us confess that our Lord Jesus Christ, that in our Lord Jesus Christ, we have everything we could possibly hope for. And therefore, let us renounce all the different schemes and inventions that our brains conceive. However, Paul does not mean here that there are no differences of status with regard to the society of this world. Okay, that's where he's pivoting. He's like, according to salvation, you know, it's a level playing field. But that doesn't mean there isn't some ramification for these distinctions that are listed here in society. For as we know, there are servants and masters, rulers and subjects. In the home, the husband is the head, and the wife must be in subjection. We know this economy to be inviolable, and that our Lord Jesus Christ did not come into this world to confuse everything by overturning what God the Father had established. When Paul says there is neither bond nor free, there is, ne- there is neither male nor female, He means that when it is a matter of salvation, men must not come like peacocks displaying their fantails, standing amazed at their own feathers. No, we must exclude any thought of our own worthiness and trample it underfoot, realizing that it is a stumbling block which will hinder us from approaching Jesus Christ. When all from the greatest to the least acknowledge that we cannot contribute anything ourselves, but that all must come from the grace and goodness of God, then our Lord Jesus Christ will come all in all to us. In other words, we will not desire to add anything to the grace that he has purchased for us. This grace is offered to us daily through the gospel to the end that we must partake of it and enjoy it in salvation. See, he just glances off of that verse, right? And all he's talking about is, isn't the grace of God wonderful? Isn't salvation wonderful? Isn't our justification wonderful, right? But he says, yeah, there'll be society. There'll be dis- these, these distinctions will carry through into society, undoubtedly. And so that's Galatians 3.28. It is, the, it is ground zero for overturning, uh, it is ground zero for many Christian feminists to call masculinity toxic. Or to call first century masculinity toxic and therefore we're more enlightened and we should be pivoting and learning and changing. And so let's not have ordered homes. Let's have homes and churches that are flat in authority. Let's have no hierarchy. Let's, let's have two-headed beasts in every one of our homes, right? And so, egalitarianism, egalitarianism is heresy. It is wicked because it flies in the face of the testimony of Scripture and the and the and what God has said is good, and how God has ordered His church, how God has ordered our homes, and, and yes, yes, how God has ordered society, largely. Men are leaders. Do I have to, like, write a 28-page dissertation now 
when I say that. I would vote for a female for president if it was a Deborah-type situation. It would be the exception that tests the rule, okay? But generally, I will not, on principle of this, that men, though they fail and they're terrible at it, have been told by God that you will lead and you will protect and keep the garden. And your wife is part of that garden. And your children are part of that garden, right? And it is your responsibility to lead. Well, or we just come along and Galatians 3.28 comes along and whoosh, just sweeps all of that off. And, and suddenly we're left without any hierarchy. Even though hierarchy can be helpful and authority can be helpful and, and God commands it. Read Harrison Bergeron by Kurt Vonnegut. If you want to know the absurd end of egalitarianism, read Harrison Bergeron by Kurt Vonnegut. Vonnegut wrote what else that everybody knows? What's the book? Uh, Fahrenheit 451 or what? That's Ray Bradbury. I always get them confused. Anyway, what? I've never heard of that. I don't know, but... Harrison Bergeron, look it up, it's hilarious, but it's the depiction of taking egalitarianism to its absurd, actually to its end, and seeing how absurd the results are, okay? It's an attempt to create perfect equality in society, and so you have to, no one, if you have a special talent, that talent has to be restricted to be average, and if you don't have any talent at all, you have to be given supplements to make you average, you know. And so it's, it's absurd. It's, it's scary, actually, to read. But anyway, I, I wanted you to be aware of this verse and the controversy of this verse in the church today. And um, because those, those evangelical feminists will will make you confused and make you feel ashamed. Um, ashamed about the testimony of Scripture. Right? And they will say, well, let's cast 1 Timothy 2 out. Let's cast Ephesians 5 out. We've got a hierarchy of Scriptures here. And Galatians 3.28 is the filter by which anything having to do with sexuality needs to be passed through. And that's just wrong. It's wrong. That's what heretics do, right? They take one verse and make it the, the whole of Scripture. Right? One verse. And we can't do that. The minute we do that, you become heretics because you need the, the remaining Input of the Holy Spirit to fill out the theological picture. Do you have your hand up? No. Do you want to say something? Okay. <laughs> All right. Um, any questions or thoughts, comments? We have two minutes. Yeah, Ben. Speak loud.
Why doesn't it say Abraham and Sarah's seed? Because yeah. it was Abraham's seed. It's very organic here. <laughs> yeah. Good point. Good point. Anything? Anything? Stephen B. Clark wrote a book called Man and Woman in Christ, something like that. It's good. It's thick. It's big. Warhorn Media just republished it in a really, really nice version. And um, Stephen Clark says Galatians 3.28 changes Christian relationship but does not abolish all role differences. Galatians 3.28 is not about equality in social relationships but equality of status before God regardless of social station or social status. Right, so we're talking. So that's we'll just wrap up there. The book is about justification by faith. And when it comes to justification by faith alone, it doesn't matter what you are. Male, female, free, slave, Jew, Gentile. And it's huge for Paul to say that. The Judaizers don't really want to say hear him say the Jew Gentile thing. I mean, they were probably breathing fire there. Right? That no difference. No, no, the Gentiles have to become Jews and then they can be saved. No, no, no. Paul says, no, when it comes to justification, it's by faith and it doesn't matter what you are or where you were born or what your education is or what the color of your skin is. Or, it doesn't matter. Faith. That's it. That's all that matters. So let's not, let's, let's be careful not to be such terrible interpreters of Scripture as evangelical feminists. It's just, it's so wicked. It's scandalous. And it causes people to stumble. Okay, let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that in Jesus, it doesn't matter whether we grew up in Michigan or in South Carolina or in California even. Father, we thank you that, um, that it is by faith and that you call all men to yourself. And Father, we pray that we would not repudiate the sex that you assigned to us in the womb, but that we would live according to your wor word and all that it says to us as men and as women. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.